0: I usually say for the last time on the last Sunday that we're studying it as a church body, not meaning for you to never open Proverbs again. In fact, we'll finish with exhortation toward that end. We as a church family have spent about the last four months of our lives when we've gathered here on Sunday mornings to studying what we might call the top 10 topics in the book of Proverbs, at least highlighting them very, very quickly probably have noted hundreds of truths from that book, and my prayer is that even as we wrap up this morning, they will not grow smaller in your rear view mirror as you plow on through life getting to your destinations, but that they'll continue to work. So just as reminders to those of you who are young as you prepare to leave the home one of these years, that you would apply God's wisdom in those opening chapters to listen to your parents, to not be enticed by the sinners of this world, to trust in the Lord and his ways, even if you're alone in doing so, and to fear God so much that you hate sin. And then for all of us, we move from there to God's call for us to be carefully wise with every word, all of our speech. I pray you will continue to apply those truths that some of those Proverbs will still ring often in your ears and maybe change the way that you talk. May we continue to grow in wisdom about our friendships, who we hang with, for he who walks with the wise grows wise, and conversely, he who walks with fools will generally become more foolish, but also just in how we conduct those friendships that they would be more Christ-like, That God would continue to humble us for pride is the greatest obstacle to God's wisdom truly taking over us. And then we started to step into, at least for most of us, some pretty big territory or pretty big topics. Our marriage relationships, our home forming, our parenting, our family forming, our sexual drive and desires and the call for God to be pure in all of that all of the ways that we work, not only vocationally, but all of the ways that we're using our minds and our bodies to produce things, whether at home, in the vocation, in the business world, in the sports world, in the music world, in other ways that we are working more and more like Jesus Christ. And then last Sunday and spilling over today a little bit, that we would continue to grow to see money and wealth and richness and poorness through God's lens, not our own. So as fast as we went last week, as many verses as we looked at, we didn't quite finish. I just decided that rather than jam that last thought into uh, an already jam-packed sermon, that we would take the risk. Some people won't be here this Sunday that we here last Sunday. Some people weren't here last Sunday and will not have the full context, but we'll take it, make the most of it, And then, Lord willing, finish out with a couple of other thematic looks through the book relatively quickly, jam-packed, but I hope really rich. Then next Sunday, Psalm 1, following Sunday, the one another's, and then the Sunday after that, I think, Lord willing, opening the book of Colossians for the fall and winter months. Would you bow with me now as we touch and talk about God's holy word? We reiterate the prayer, Lord, that we just sang. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Show us his work. Show us even through all of these principles, him and the Father and the Spirit, guiding and pointing us toward both of those. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear wondrous things. In the word of God, I pray, work powerfully through these truths to sanctify each of us, to make us ever more like precious Jesus Christ, that we might reflect him, manifest him, adorn the gospel, and glorify you. We ask in your name, amen. So... First of all, finishing up on money. Of all the things that Proverbs addresses about what we are to do with our money, perhaps its heaviest emphasis is that God wants us to not hold it selfishly, but in many ways to give it away. Not in these tiny, Scrooge-like little increments, but abundantly, generously imitating our Lord and His lavishing nature on us and acting on his behalf toward two particular groups, the materially poor and other believers and churches. So first of all, some proverbs on God's desire for us to be generous to the materially poor. And certainly in our culture, it's complicated with so many who are misusing and deceiving and wrongly using and harmfully using gifts that are given to them. We need to be careful that we are discerning and not just shutting the door on something that is the heart of God. Proverbs 14:21. whoever despises his neighbor, in other words, is a sinner. In other words, it's sin to be hard-hearted toward our neighbors to be uncaring, to be unsympathetic, to just figure they've worked, that's what they've gotten, that's their due in life. Tough situation, tough draw, tough beans. I'm sure glad I've got everything I've got. But blessed, there's a beatitude. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. 1917, whoever is generous to the poor, and here's an intriguing wording, Lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. In other words, if we trust God enough to be generous to others with his heart, with his leading, he sees that it comes back, that blessing is poured back on us. Proverbs 22 9, whoever has, and here's a cool description. Has anybody ever said this of you? Certainly hasn't of me. He who has a bountiful eye, he who has an eye to be generous, to be bountiful, to be benevolent, to be giving, will be blessed. It's the heart of God. For he shares his bread, what God has given him, his daily allotment, with the poor, whom perhaps God has not given as much to. 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Perhaps a great case study of that is the disciple named Judas Iscariot. Right there amongst the generous Jesus, stingy about that money being going to somebody else. We know because he was pilfering it. And when it came to the agonizing decisions that he made, and he sought some kind of alignment and help with the religious leaders in betraying Jesus, called out and had no one to answer. Proverbs 14, 31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Among, didn't see this coming, among the most difficult poor for us to love are the mentally ill. But for us to oppress them, which might mean simply not lifting a finger to help them in any way ever, insults the maker. But he who is generous to the poor honors him. We've noted this before, but Jesus so cares for the poor that he aligns himself with them and says in Matthew that if you've given a cup of water to one of these, you've given it to him. So, what are you doing specifically for the poor, the materially poor? However you believe God defines that. And when you see someone needy, does your hand go to your wallet to protect it from being stolen or taken advantage of? Or does it go in case the spirit of God in you would stir you compassionately to share out of the bounty that God has given you? More broadly then, uh, a couple of other Proverbs that address just overall being generous and giving. Proverbs 21, 26. The righteous, the ones who have received the righteousness of Christ and are seeking now to become like Jesus, gives and does not hold back. Not self-centered, not stingy. Don't see it as mostly for me. Go earn your own. Nineteen six. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts, which might sound like, for many of us, more friends than we want and friends with ulterior motives, but God doesn't address that. Perhaps if we were more generous, we would gain a better platform for verbally then sharing the gospel with them, the greatest riches we have to give them. So, why do Christians as a whole not have a better reputation for being generous? You can argue there's lots of things that we do that are mercy ministry, lots of ways that we bless culture, but individually, how are we perceived by the lost around us, those we work with, those we live around, etc.? Do they see us as mostly keeping it for ourselves and spending it on ourselves and keeping up with them? Or do they see us open to share, sensitive to needs? And then one particular expression of generosity early in the book, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. So this comes just after the uh, acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he will direct your paths. And then comes this command out of those exhortations to trust the Lord honor the Lord and then the thing that God picks to talk about honoring the Lord we need to honor him with our words we need to honor him with all kinds of ways but honor the Lord with your wealth which might be for some of us the hardest expression of honoring him and with the first fruits of all your produce or all your paychecks of all that God gives to you so abundantly In other words, in Solomon's day, that was the temple and the nation as a whole by collection, by tithe, by offerings, both for sin, for thanksgiving, but also for their community. So now in the New Testament, we see that the church, the believers, make the church and their collection, their communities the place where they pool their resources for the gospel, whether that's sending missionaries or helping those who are disadvantaged or whatever that might be. And the, the principle behind it is God has given so spiritually, abundantly and riches to us that he wants us now in even material ways to be generous and rich in our giving out as well. Now, we haven't looked at Jesus' example uh, in this area as much as we have in other areas, but maybe that's part of the point is that Jesus showed us life lived at tremendous simplicity. Talk about a minimalist is a richer life in so many ways than a life of luxury like we have. He didn't tell us having a lot of money is sinful but he just showed us by his life that you can be completely unconcerned about money and where the next meal is going to come from, and just be actively on mission for the Lord and know that even as you give away, God will repay and provide. So I love Ray Ortland's short little, we'll have a number of his short little one-liners here. Wisdom makes us sacrificial. Like Christ and it's just intriguing to me I I shamefully know the answer to this question from my own life but if God gave you the same amount of money and let's go ahead and adjust it for inflation if God gave you the same amount of money as he gave his son to live on on this earth would you be happy satisfied or wishing you had more or perhaps taking away from something he has called you to do in order to make that. It's just challenging to think about the contentedness of Jesus with the absolute, almost poverty-like, for most of us, wealth that he had. And then Proverbs eleven twenty-four: 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give. Notice that word. Should give what God is stirring in his heart and calling him in his word to be generous with. And the result is he only suffers one. It's a mind bending paradox, isn't it? Giving freely, giving it away, makes us richer. And hoarding it selfishly makes us poorer. Ortland again selfishness is poverty, generosity is wealth. Do you believe that? All right, New Testament and just, first of all, in this area of generosity. This is a lot of words on the screen, I recognize that. I'm hoping the colors help with speed reading a little bit, but this is such a loaded text. I want you to hear how much God stirred the heart of Solomon to write about this, and 3,000 years, I'm sorry, 2,000 years later, stirs the heart of Paul, 1,000 years later, stirs the heart of Paul to write about this as well. Notice the similarity in so many of these Proverbs. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, like other people are going to find out I gave the least amount of anybody. Not out of those false motives. God loves a cheerful giver, and And here's an interesting incident to think about. When Jesus observed the widow putting her last two pennies in the temple offering, he did not stop her and give them back to her or give her more money. He praised her for worshiping God with everything she had and trusting her God that he would provide for her even when she gave her very last pennies. So the promise of verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, is that comprehensive enough? You may abound in every good work, and every good work includes in this context, generously giving your money away, even when you may be short yourself knowing that God will make all grace abound. And then it points us in verse 9 to the fact that God has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. And so now in verse 10, he supplies seed to the sower, that's you and me, and bread for food will supply and multiply, multiply your seed for sowing, back to the opening principle, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And now I love this line in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Why? For your earthly happiness? To be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. And then a couple sentences later, thanks be to God for his inexpressibly good, abundant gift to us. And then now we're backing out the camera and just very quickly noting a couple of New Testament principles just while we're on money. And then I'll stop beating you uh, with these messages. But it's such a God for us, such a challenge to our love for God. So let's just hear afresh. First of all, the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12 take care or be very, 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 very careful. You're dealing with something that has incredible power to turn you away from God. Be on your guard against particularly covetousness. Tenth commandment, woven throughout scripture, the greediness, the desire for more, the wanting, 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 never fully satisfied, never contented. If I had just a little bit more, I'd be happier. If I had just a little more, I'd do this or that for God. And here's why. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. It's so much more than that. And Jesus then tells the parable and he concludes at the end of that that I don't have on the slide. Every human being that God prospers is going to do one of two things. He's going to be rich toward himself or he's going to be rich toward God. And in the parable that he tells of the wealthy farmer who just built more things to store more stuff so he had more and gave, as far as we can tell, none of it away or certainly negligible amounts. Jesus said that very night his soul would be demanded of him. And then Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy And this is a passage that should fill us with trembling, and I've woven in Ecclesiastes 5 as well, which is Solomon's writing, just wanting you to see how all of these texts by God are speaking to this. So, short little line, first of all, in 1 Timothy 6.6. We know it. We probably all could recite it. Godliness with contentment is great gain or the most profitable position that we can be in is to be contented and to be godly. That's the richest kind of people. And then I'm going to interject here Ecclesiastes 5 and we'll come back to 1 Timothy. And here's why that's such an important principle. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And then Solomon's word that he uses so much, this is vanity, this is meaningless. It's so meaningless to just keep chasing after this unsatisfied. And here's why. When goods increase, they, inc- they increase who eat them. In other words, the more money you get, the more money you spend, the, more, the war- more ways you find to consume that wealth. And what advantage has their owner to see them with his eyes before they're gone? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep because there's more money to be made. There's a, this is a grievous evil, Solomon says. Not just an evil. This is a heart-wrenching evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches kept by their owner to his hurt. All right, now back to 1 Timothy, the rest of Paul's explanation here. Here's why it's so good to be godly, no matter what your financial condition. We brought nothing in, we take nothing out, If we have food and clothing for today, with those, we'll be content. And then comes this scary warning of why we should run in the other direction. Those who desire to be rich, those who just are never content, the aching thing in their heart all the time, the things they think about most of their days is always dreaming of making a little more money, getting a little bit more, buying the next thing, owning the next thing, having more, 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 more. More is better. More is always better fall into temptation, into a snare, into, is he saying it enough different ways? Into many, senseless, in other words, stupid, foolish, because I didn't have to do it, and harmful desires that plunge, what a verb, plunge people into ruin and destruction. So Solomon uses strong language, Jesus uses strong language, Paul is using strong language. Are we getting the message Let's not be fools who think we're strong enough to not get sucked into the quicksand. We won't be victims. And so Paul reiterates, same idea that Solomon wrote about. The love of money is a root, is a cause, is at the core of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And now the response that God calls us to is, O you, O man of God, O you godly ones, be content and flee these things. Don't toy with them, don't be Lot's wife, don't keep looking at them. Flee, run in the opposite direction and pursue in their place righteousness, here comes the word again, godliness, that's how verse six started, faith, love, steadfastness, holding the course, undeterred, and gentleness. So, God has such a different view on money and riches and wealth than we do and what our world does. And so let's be ever more transformed by God to discern uh, that it be a blessing to us and not a curse that poisons us. All right. Done with money. You can relax. Probably not. Lots of topics we could go from that I'm just choosing at this point to end Proverbs and not do. Anger, alcohol, jealousy, envy, gluttony, the heart, emotions, justice, self-control, meddling in all kinds of other relationship things, leadership principles for kings and other leaders. All kinds of ways we could easily go the rest of the year and not exhaust the topics. Maybe someday we'll get back there, but in case we don't, this is the last conclusion ever on studying Proverbs. Here's how I want to spend the remainder of our time. One, looking at the foundational truths about God and about Christ that Proverbs points at, particularly highlights. And secondly, a Proverbs filled urging for all of us to pursue Proverbs wisdom more and more. So, first of all, Proverbs highlights attributes of God truths that should profoundly shape the way we look at him. So I think one of the dangers of the way we read Proverbs is we look for us. What am I supposed to do? Give me advice for me to figure out life. And God is always calling us first and foremost bigger. Look at me. Look at me as you look at life and figure out what you are to do. So God is woven throughout this book more than I Realized, and I just want to exhort us to note those things when we're in the book of Proverbs and not gloss over them too quickly. First of all, Proverbs makes an unbreakable correlation between how well we know God and how wise we become. Maybe clearest in Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord, which reiterates chapter 1, verse 7, the opening statement after the introduction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But notice the tie-in now. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Those two factors together are the foundation out of which all wisdom from God flows. Wearsby, you can make a living without knowing many things, but you cannot make a life without knowing God. Now, we know, but reminders, that the only way we know God The only way knowledge is even possible of him is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and what Jesus Christ has done, and our recognition of the necessity of that and our trust in him. To know God, first and foremost, is to know Jesus Christ. God the Father wants us to know him, or we could say them, the persons, the Godhead, and invites us into communion with him and fellowship with him. Love James 4, 8. Draw near to God. That is a command, and it is an invitation. And then comes this exhilarating response promise, and he will draw near to you. God wants us to know him and be near him, to know everything we possibly can about him. He invites it. God the Son worked. So God the Father wants, God the Son worked, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and even this very second in his right-hand position of the Father, mediating and interceding on our behalf for us to know God the Father better. I don't have this on the slide, but I love the way Jesus put it in John 14, 23. He said to the disciples, and this is at the Last Supper, this is right after the washing of the feet, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In our context, we could say, if anyone loves me, he will live according to what Proverbs says and teaches. And my Father will love him, and we, plural, will come to him and make our home with him. not that a beautiful description? Yes, ultimately in heaven, fully fleshed out, but even now in relationship. And then third, God the Father Once, God the Son worked, and now God the Spirit works, present tense, in all those who know the Father and the Son to know them better and better and better. That's what the Spirit is doing, is pointing us toward the Father and the Son that we might know them in every way that we can. So, life is either going to be about knowing God in deepening ways that ever more profoundly influence the hundreds of choices we're making every day, or... It's going to be disknowing God, unknowing God, whether that's intentional rejecting, denying, ignoring, doubting, that also profoundly influences all the choices we're making every day. We will either live as if there is a no God or one not relevant to everything in our lives, or we will live and choose very differently because we know God. And understand his profound relevance to everything in our lives. So, I remind you again of Spurgeon's great line: "If we were just greater students, studiers of God, how much happier, and I'll put in the Proverbs application, how much wiser we would be." So, how does Proverbs teach us to know the Holy One in such a way that we fear Him? The two things that Proverbs nine ten combines. So. We're gonna roll quickly here. Here's two primary emphases that as I gathered all the verses that talked about the Lord that really stood out to me. One is how God knows and judges everything about us. 521, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders, he examines, he thinks about, he holds them accountable, all of his paths. 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. 17.3, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, both of them refining by heat, and it's the Lord in the same way that tests hearts. And 20.27, the Spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Remember how Solomon emphatically concluded that complex book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, the end of everything, the end of all the philosophizing I've done. All's been heard, all the cards have been played, everything's been put out there. Here's what it ought to lead to. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the duty of man. Four, here's why. This is the closing line. We often end at verse 13 as if that's the last line. Four, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Pretty comprehensive. Second reason for us, or second way that we know the Holy One in a way that produces fear within us is how God sovereignly controls everything about our lives and everything about the entire universe and all things that are going on. Now, there's a lot here. Ten times in the last second half of Proverbs, ten times in the second half of Proverbs, these truths come out in some nuanced way. Here we go. 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, we can plan, we can go hard to accomplish all the things that we think we're supposed to accomplish, but God always has the last word. Derek Kidner. God has not merely the last word, but the soundest the best, the wisest. Proverbs 16, 9, very similarly, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 1921, many are the plans in the man, mind of a man. Oh, do we plan, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 2024, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? Because God has orchestrated it in profoundly mysterious ways. We always want to know more. We always want to know why. And God just simply says, you're gonna to have to do a lot of this without knowing that and you just trust by faith, my goodness. Keep going, Proverbs 16.3, the response then should be that we commit our work, our plans, our ways, our path to the Lord who's superintending it all and that's when our plans will be most established. 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is ultimately determined by the Lord. 21.1, king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Doesn't matter how powerful he is. God will turn it wherever he will. 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can prevail against the Lord's wisdom, understanding, and counsel. 25.1, it's the glory of God to conceal things, the glory of kings to search them out, and 3131, 31, uh, nope, that's gotta be 2131. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Lots we could talk about here. It's an immensely complicated topic, uh, but I love Spurgeon's simple way of simply saying, for the Christian, for the believer, for the one who trusts in God, the sovereignty of God is our pillow every single night that we can rest our head in and Feel complete peace. All right. Time is killing us. Um, All right, we'll do it. We'll do it fast. So responses to God that Proverbs calls us to. And we've already talked a number of times about the fear of the Lord. I just put these four up as reminders of the incredible blessings that are promised to those who fear the Lord, that it brings strong confidence, our children have a refuge, it's a fountain of life. it turns us away from the snares of death that want to destroy us. It leads to life, it brings us rest and satisfaction, um, and it's rich the rewards of it are riches, honor and life. couple of go one more slide, would you? Okay, go back, sorry. All right, I left one off. Would you squeeze in there after Proverbs 18.10 and before you start reading those quotes, just bear with me. It's a, I think it's a profound proverb. Here's what it says, and look there if you can. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Whoa, does that sound like works righteousness maybe? Like, if we're faithful enough, if we're uh, steadfast loving enough, our iniquity will be atoned for. Well, here's how Christ is woven in. Who, who is the one who has steadfast love? We just quoted in Psalm 17, uh, 117 last Sunday to open our service. We sing about it probably half of our Sundays. The one with faithfulness and steadfast love is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one who has atoned for our sin. So even our salvation, even the work of Christ is meant, the second half of the proverb, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So even the work of Christ is intended to produce fear within us that turns us away from the very evil that Jesus Christ has atoned for. All right. The better you know God, the more you fear him, the wiser you become. And conversely, the less you fear God, because you, the less you know God, the more you will hamstring your ability to ever be truly wise. Okay, the quotes. Anthony Salvaggio. Actually, go one more slide, sorry. This is my bad, I just, nope, go back. Okay, I lost the slide somewhere in there. Let me give you four more references of responses that Proverbs speaks that we are to have toward God. Proverbs 3, five to seven, you know this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Here's why, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Back to Proverbs 3, 26. The Lord will be your confidence. And one more, I love this one, Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. There it is. Where'd that come from? Was that up there? Sorry, okay. (laughs) Two closing thoughts by man, not nearly as important as all the rest. But Anthony and Salvaggio, as you continue on the journey through the maze that is your life, remember always that you are not alone. Your Father is with you. He is counseling you with his wisdom. He's providing light on your path. He is leading you inexorably to himself. That is the true end of wisdom. And that is the end of a Proverbs driven life. And then just last night, a meme on Instagram. Can anything good come from Instagram? Yes. A lot of evil can, but some good can. And here's one a quote by John Piper God is pleased when his children walk into difficult situations with confident hope that their strong, wise father will help them every step of the way. So, second big thing is just all that Proverbs says about the Lord. Closing thought for today. I have no idea how I'm gonna do it in time, but here we roll. Keep studying Proverbs. So for about 12 Sundays, we've shoved it under your nose, right in front of you, told you to turn there, walk through, You've heard a lot if you've been here. But it's not nearly enough. I hope it's just a wet your appetite kind of a thing. Keep studying. You need hundreds of more reps in the book of Proverbs and in all the rest of the counsel of God. So, several thoughts very quickly. In the negative, Proverbs 19, 27. If you cease hearing instruction, if you stop taking the Proverbs in and the rest of God's word, you will stray from them. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Thirteen thirteen, whoever despises the word, which means not only hates it, but is apathetic toward it, who is half-hearted, who's ho-hum, who will take it or leave it, who has it some of the week, but not all the week, it's whenever it works out. Brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. And then maybe a little more positively, Proverbs 16:20, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord and in the goodness of the Lord to give us all the commands and principles that he does. And then 19:16: whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. And that's the closing conclusion of Ecclesiastes, remember, as well. So what Christ has done does not lessen the importance, next slide, please, of this call to keep the commandments one ounce. In fact, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' massive work to make us righteous in standing is impetus, intensifying fire for us to live these out even more. Love these two one-liners from Ray Ortland. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives and wisdom is the gospel of Christ reshaping us for royalty. So two final exhortations here. Proverbs twenty-three, twenty-three. such an easy address to remember. By truth, now we can't actually pay money for it, right? It's free from God, but buy it in the sense of whatever you have to pay, time, investment, whatever, pay that, it's worth it, and don't sell it, don't compromise, don't give away that truth for something lesser. And then Proverbs 35 to 6, one of the last thoughts in the book, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him, Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. The book of Proverbs warns us so many times. This is just going to be a visual. I'm not going to read all of these. But look at all the different ways that Proverbs warns us. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. In Proverbs 26, do you see a man wise in his eyes? More hope for a fool. Don't trust in your own mind. Fools do. Don't just go with the way that seems right to you. It could well be leading to death. And the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, and every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So I didn't count them. Seven or eight times, throughout, sprinkled throughout the book of Proverbs. God just doesn't let us go very many chapters before reminding us, you are incredibly stupid if you're just gonna try and figure out life on your own without God. Also, Proverbs commends, holds up before our eyes The beauty, the power, and the supremacy of worth of Proverbs, of wisdom that comes from God. Perhaps our biggest problem is we don't love wisdom. We don't value it enough. We say we do. But when our life is just lived out, we're too comfortable with our own thinking in most cases and rarely even pray about it, let alone think about what are the all the different ways that God speaks to whatever issue this is that helps guide us through it. We veer so quickly into thinking we're actually wiser than we are. And so we don't desire deeply enough and we don't pursue deeply enough the wisdom of God. I had two people tell me this week, don't worry about going overtime. So if you're upset about going overtime, talk to them, I'll give you their names. Proverbs 3. So here's what I want to do. I just want you to hear how many times, and we won't do all of these, but some of them, how many times and in how many beautiful ways God calls us to want his wisdom. Proverbs 3, blessed, happy, contented. Here's another beatitude. Is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and profiting from gold. She's more precious than jewels. And here's an incredible line Nothing you desire can compare with the worth of value of wisdom. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor, speaking in spiritual ways. Her ways are ways of pleasantness; all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. We talked about that in the first Sundays, that powerful word picture. Here's the tree of life in our lives right now. To all who lay hold of her and those who lay hold her fast are called blessed. One chapter later, and I'd encourage you, I meant to tell you, turn here in your Bible and mark these. I think they're worth highlighting or starring. Proverbs 4, 5 to 9, five bulleted commands. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget it. Do not turn away from it. Do not forsake it. And now come promises. She'll keep you, love her. She'll guard you. Back to commands. Get wisdom, get insight, prize it highly. Here's why. She'll exalt you. She'll honor you if you'll embrace her. She'll put a crown on your head, a graceful garland to beautify your life. Now leaf over to Proverbs 8, two different places in that chapter. Starting in verse 17. I, wisdom speaking here, which is Christ speaking here. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth forever, eternal wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold and silver. And then down in verses 34 to 36. Blessed, really truly satisfied is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting moment by moment beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. I have a couple more references there, but that then takes us, and I just read this a couple of Sundays ago, so I won't read it again, but go back to Proverbs 2, and the first 12 verses, about half the chapter, is just a beautiful exposé, and you might write in there if you haven't yet, James 1, 5 to 8. So James 1, 5 is, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously, one of God's very favorite gifts to give. Here in Proverbs 2 is the explanation of how we ask. Receive his words, treasure up his word in our hearts, tune our ears, incline our hearts, call out, beg for it, seek it, search for it. And then in that desire and those, that effort, you will understand the fear of the Lord. And notice the knowledge of God. Where did we see that before? Proverbs 9:10. See how God t- brought the two of them together again here in chapter 2. And then you'll understand this. Wisdom will come into your heart. And discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil. Okay. Let me close with two Proverbs. Nope. One Proverbs. Well, there are two Proverbs, one in the book of Proverbs, one from the book of Ecclesiastes, but both with this picture. A wise man is full of strength for whatever crippling situation you are in. A wise person is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. And then 7 9, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So, my exhortations to you. Keep reading and reading and reading and rereading and rereading the book of Proverbs and God's wisdom that has poured out the wide-ranging counsel of God for life. But don't just read them dutifully. In other words, I don't know that reading a chapter of Proverbs a day is necessarily the best approach. What about just read until God strikes your heart with a thought? Stop, memorize, pray over and ask God to bear fruit in your life for that. Like a chapter is like, it's like a sermon of Rob's, it's too much. So just work your way through it. Don't be in a hurry, just soak and saturate. But repetition is a part of the way. So do it often, do it slowly, do it thoughtfully, do it prayerfully. Memorize as many of them as you can because that's what the Holy Spirit works with. He pulls the Proverbs up that we put in our hearts and minds and uses them. So memorize them, think about them, pray over them. And as Proverbs exhorts us, teach them to others. Connect them to Christ Jesus. And I don't have this quote on a slide, but here's Savaggio again. Jesus serves as the impetus for living a Proverbs driven life. As we live wisely, according to Proverbs, we're living like Christ. We are being conformed into his image and we are reflecting his glory to the world around us. Hone in. We can live a Proverbs driven life because Jesus first lived that life for us. As the one who lived wisdom, the one who is wisdom, the one who is the way to wisdom, and the one who supplies wisdom Jesus is present in proverbs in the most profound way don't read and study proverbs Jesuslessly have him all and then from galatians 6 so to the spirit nope back to that sorry that was good cue you followed it perfectly so to the spirit that he would produce the fruit of Christ in your heart and in your life Applying them every time. Don't back down. Don't doubt. Don't think, well, I know God says this, but I gotta do this instead. Sow to the Spirit. Remember Galatians 6, 7, and 9. As long as you can, do not be deceived. God will never be mocked. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. You sow to your own flesh. From your flesh, you'll reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit. And from the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And just remember the strong words of Jesus in Matthew 7, where I'm just going to summarize for you. Well, you could put the slide up. Everyone who hears these words and does them. So that's the starting line. And then down below in the next paragraph is everyone who hears and does not do them, doesn't apply them. So they might know them. They might pass a doctrinal test better. They might write more out and get an A in the writing of them. But, Doing them versus non-doing them. You're either a wise man doing them, building your house on a rock, and when the storms of life come, it doesn't fall. Or you're a fool who's building everything on sand because you're not actually living it out. And when those storms come, the collapse is great. And then James 1, the New Testament uh, parallel to Proverbs. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And here's the danger. When you're a hearer only, you are deceiving yourself about what's really going on in your life. Be doers of the word, the one who looks into it, perseveres, keeps going in Proverbs for the rest of their life. Be not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He is blessed in his doing. bring you back, I don't have this on a slide, I'll bring you back in the last sentence here to Ephesians 5, we just read this a couple of Sundays ago, Kevin read it, 15 to 18, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, not making good use of the time, not making better use than you used to make of the time, not Better use than other people are making of the time. Make the best use of the time. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then he reiterates it. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And then one verse later, be filled with the Spirit. Father, I thank you for the book of Proverbs. What an incredible gift it is to us. Thank you for the blessing of these months that we've been able to study it together. But I pray, Father, that it will not end here. I pray that you will stir every heart. There's so much else in your counsel too, but don't let us neglect Proverbs where you speak so practically. You show us your son verse after verse and the beauty of his faithfulness. You warn us of how much death and destruction and damage awaits us in the foolish ways. God, keep sharpening us and using that and making us as you call us to be in Ephesians 5, making the best use of every single day that you give us to live this life here for your glory until you come for us. We ask all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen.